All right. Take a Bible. Find 2 Samuel. We're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 9. We're going to look at chapter 16. We're going to look at chapter 19. Uh, Let me say a few things before we jump in. Uh, It's interesting how closely some of the themes in this sermon line up with what we're going to talk about Sunday morning. On Sunday mornings, we've been talking about the attributes of God, and this upcoming Sunday, we're going to talk about God's love, and that's a lot of what we are going to talk about tonight. Uh, God's love for his people, how David mirrored that, how we ought to mirror that, so a lot of parallels there. We're talking about David and Mephibosheth, and one of the things I just want to admit to you is that when I mapped the series out for Wednesday nights and looked at the episodes of David's life we might talk about, this was one of the ones that I had on my list and I thought, yeah, I don't really want to do that one. We're covering a lot of things in David's life. We're covering some of the stuff that's a little bit in the weeds, and this is really not an in-the-weeds Um, type relationship, David and Mephibosheth, but it's one that I just thought, eh, eh, I could take it or leave it. Wasn't really that excited about it. Um, And in studying, there was some things that were new to me that uh, I wouldn't have been able to tell you on the front side of studying um, and things that are helpful for me to think about. I hope that they're going to be helpful for you to think about tonight as well. Um, It is an interesting lesson, the way we're approaching this one, because we're covering a lot of different time periods in David's life to connect the dots between David and Mephibosheth. Most of these Wednesday nights, we've kind of looked at a single episode or a a single period of time, sort of contiguous. Tonight, we're going back to things we've already talked about. We're jumping to the present and where David's at now. And then we're also looking into the future uh, several weeks out, uh, what we're going to be talking about on Wednesday nights. So we're covering a lot of ground here. Before we start, let me ask you this. How many of you speak more than one language? Anybody in here? One and a half. (laughs) Most of us don't. Um, You count as one, by the way, not two. Yeah, just one. Um, When you learn a language, there's a lot of things that go into learning a new language, especially if you're learning as an adult. And one of the things you just have to do if you're learning a new language is learn vocabulary. You just have to learn words and what they mean and definitions. And there's lots of different ways to do that, but you just got to learn vocabulary. For people who are not primary English speakers, one of the challenges they face in learning English is that we're kind of a, a mutt language in some senses, And words have a lot of different meanings that sometimes have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And when you talk to people, if you've ever been involved with like an ESL program, English is a second language where you're teaching vocabulary to people, there's times where you talk about words and their definitions where people say, that means that? I thought it meant this. And there's just a sort of a disconnect on, on definitions. And so I just want to give you a few examples of that. This is not uh, a participatory, at least audibly participatory uh, exercise. This is a, a thought exercise in your brain, and then maybe we'll do a show of hands here. I'm going to give you some words, 10 words, 
And I just want you to think about what comes into your mind first. I don't need you to blurt it out. Lyndon's not here tonight, so nobody should be blurting anything out. Um, you ready? Ten words. Just think what comes in your mind first. First word is bark. How many of you thought about a dog? How many of you thought about a tree? Eh, dog wins. Word number two, nails. How many of you thought about a hammer? How many of you thought about a manicure? Okay. How about the word mine? Mine. How many of you are thinking about, that's mine, it belongs to me? How many of you are thinking about gold and getting rich? A few of you. How about the word bolt? Bolt. How many of you are thinking about some type of metal fastener? And how many of you are thinking about lightning? And how many of you are thinking about running fast? There you go. How about season? Is that a time of year? Or is that something you do to your food? Some of you are hungry. You haven't had dinner yet, so you're thinking about seasoning your food. How about novel? Novel. Is that something you read or is that something new? There you go. I knew a few of you would, would go with new. How about draft? Draft. Don't give me any mean looks. The air conditioner is not on tonight. <laughs> Nobody say I'm thinking about the sanctuary and how drafty it is in here. But how many of you thought of air currents? Drafts. How many of you thought about the military? How many of you thought about a, a version of something, a first draft? How many of you thought of sports, athletics, a draft? You, you understand the pain for somebody learning English? Let's learn the word draft. You only have to know eight definitions. Easy. How about squash? Squash. How many of you think of what you like to do to spiders? Squash them. How many of you thought of the sport? Squash. You're such liars, you didn't think of that. <laughs> How many of you thought of the vegetable? Sorry, I had, to, I had to look for the last definition. I couldn't remember it. How about hatch? How many of you are picturing a chicken hatching out of an egg? How many of you are picturing a trap door like on a submarine? How many of you are thinking of an idea and a scheme? You're plotting and you're hatching an idea. There you go. One more. <laughs> chilies, hatch chilies, yeah. All you New Mexicans in your hatch green chilies. Racket. Is that something you hold in your hand when you play tennis? Or is that something your children make when they're unruly and loud? That might depend on your stage of life, uh, what you think about there. So this is an issue when you're learning English. This is also an issue, this sort of uh, semantic question and the definition of words and the meaning of words is also an issue when we come to the Bible. Contrary to what some people believe, the Bible did not drop down from the heavens in pristine King James Version English 400 some years ago. It was written in Hebrew and it was written in Greek and there's a few other little weird things in there occasionally but primarily Hebrew and Greek, and then it's translated into English. And translation is tricky. You have to think about 
literal meanings of words and you have to think about the intentions of phrases and what the author is trying to communicate. And sometimes there's words that get translated from Hebrew or Greek into English. And sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp the meaning of those words because something might get a little bit lost in translation and we struggle to find the right English word. Sometimes we get confused because the English word that is chosen is one that we have multiple definitions for. And when you find it in the Bible, you may find yourself saying, well, what does this word mean here? Because it has multiple definitions in English. And there's an example of that in our story tonight as we're talking about grace and love. Those are sort of the big themes that we're talking about when you think about David and Mephibosheth, grace and love. Grace could be a coordinated movement. Somebody could have grace. They could be graceful in their movements. Somebody could have good manners, right? They just exude grace. They're elegant. They're dignified. Uh, Grace could be something you say before a meal. Somebody say grace. Say the prayer. Grace could be, uh, in the biblical sense, favor from God that is unmerited and undeserved. That's sort of the idea that we're talking about tonight. And we're talking about love, showing love to people. And love is certainly something that we use in a lot of different ways. It's a word we use to describe a lot of different things. Um, My wife cooked dinner tonight. I loved it. It was great. Um, When I left the house, I told her I loved her. I didn't mean the exact same thing when I told her that. We use the word love in different ways, and so we're thinking about God's grace. We're thinking about love. Uh, That's sort of the heartbeat of this relationship between David and Mephibosheth, and it's just a fascinating story to go back and to see Uh, where Mephibosheth is introduced in the scriptures to see how his paths then cross with David and to see how their lives end up. Um, It's a remarkable story. So we'll start with this, Uh, setting the stage with the help of Eugene Peterson. Hesed, chesed, depending on how you want to pronounce it, it's a Hebrew word for love. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. It's often used in the biblical revelation to designate God's love, but we humans who have been created in the image of God, are also capable of loving in this way, even though we we never seem to be very good at it. Chesed is the love without regard to shifting circumstances, hormones, emotional states, and personal convenience. That is essentially what God has shown to David at this point in his life. And in this episode, it's what David is going to in turn show to somebody else. So we're going to break this story, David and Mephibosheth, into scenes, okay? We're just going to take it one scene at a time, one episode at a time. So scene one, Mephibosheth is injured. That's the first time we meet this guy in the Bible is he's injured. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So when he's five years old, his father and his grandfather are killed in battle. That's essentially the first tragedy that happens to this guy. He loses his dad and his granddad in a military defeat. They both die. 
He's five years old. Everyone in the royal family, in Saul's family, understood the standard operating procedure when a king was defeated in battle and lost his life. All the other nations around Israel, and Saul was no different than all the other kings around Israel, all these other nations, if they conquered another king and defeated him in battle, would go to the capital and wipe everybody out who was in the royal family. You don't leave any trace. You don't leave any descendant. You don't leave any offspring. You don't leave any heir to the throne. You don't leave anybody who could rise up and lead a rebellion and say, hey, I'm the rightful king of whatever. You go immediately and you just kill them all. And like I said, Saul was no different than all these other Near Eastern kings. He was petty. He was paranoid. He was insecure. He was fearful. That's how he operated his kingdom. That's the sort of thing Saul would do. And so when Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle, everyone in the royal family assumes David and his men are going to come for the royal family. They're going to come and wipe everyone out. We've got to get out of here. Mephibosheth is five, and his nurse picks him up. And it's so easy for us to read that. Just one verse. It takes 20 seconds to read it. But you can imagine the fear in their hearts thinking, David's army could be here any minute to kill us all. Didn't happen. Wasn't going to happen, but that's what they thought might happen. And in haste and in terror, they gather up the kids. They take Mephibosheth. He's five. They're trying to get out of the palace. Someone trips. Someone falls. They drop the kid. His legs break, and he's crippled. Loses his parents loses his grandfather, and now he is crippled. They take him to a place called Lodabar. Lodabar. Redpath says this, that word means the barren land, a place of emptiness and dissatisfaction. That was where Mephibosheth lived. So in our area, we have a place called No Trees. Okay, this place was called Low Debar. It's barren and it's desolate. That's the name of the place. We have a place when we drive home, we drive through Brownfield. They call it Brownfield for a reason. This place was called Low Debar for a reason. So we're just going to have a little thought exercise here. This is going to be challenging for you, so I need you to really lock in and think with me. I want you to picture in your mind, I know this is hard, a place with no vegetation to speak of, lots of sand and rocks, no water, no rivers, no lakes, no ocean, and it's hot and it's windy and it's nasty. Are you getting anything? Nothing at all, right? Okay? That's low debar, low debar. And I just want you to think about this. They take this kid who's lost his dad and lost his granddad. He is dropped and his legs are broken. They think that his life is in danger. And so they say, we've got to get him to a place where nobody's going to look for him. Nobody would look for him in no trees. Take him to no trees and he's going to hide out. And he's going to be a refugee one more interesting detail here. You can look over in First Chronicles 9. 
Mephibosheth's given name was not Mephibosheth. His given name was Mary Baal, M-E-R-I dash Baal, Mary Baal. Mephibosheth seems to be a nickname of sorts, and Mephibosheth means, are you ready for this, bitter dishonor. So I just want you to think about these two terms. You got a guy, his name is Mary Baal, but everyone calls him bitter dishonor, Mephibosheth. And he lives in a place called Lodabar, barren, desolate, brownfield, no trees. Your dad is dead, your granddad is dead, and you grow up crippled thinking if they find out where I'm at, they're going to kill me. That's what all the other nations were doing at that time. If they know that I'm the grandson of the former king of Israel and that I'm still alive, they're going to come for me and they're going to kill me. Peterson says this, Mephibosheth was the only living heir of the once great house of Saul, but nobody knew it because his life would have been in danger if that information were revealed. He grew up with his royal identity suppressed, grew up with all the privileges of royalty denied him, and both conditions were aggravated by his lameness. In 2 Samuel 4, 4, that verse we read just gets dropped into the middle of a story. It really doesn't have a whole lot to do with what comes before or after. It just sort of gets dropped in there. Hebrew authors did this, do this from time to time in the Old Testament scriptures. You see this in the New Testament. For example, Luke does this in the book of Acts. They just drop a name or they drop something into a story that really seems incidental or not that important. And they drop it in here because they're going to come back to it later. And so right here in chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4, you get this one note. Hey, you need to know about Mephibosheth. This is who he was and this is what happened to him. And they're going to come back to that later. And the author wants you to understand Saul's house, Saul's line has been cut off, but not completely. There's one living heir. And then the last thing the author's doing here, I think in 2 Samuel 4, when he just drops this in randomly, if you're reading it, you should come to that verse and say, why did you put that there? He put it there so you would stop and say, why did you put that there? That's why it's there. So you start thinking about Mephibosheth and you think, What would it be like to be Mephibosheth? What what if that happened to me? What if you were royalty, you lost your dad, you lost your granddad, you get dropped and your legs are broken, no fault of your own, they never heal properly, you're crippled the rest of your life. They take you of all places to Lodabar, and they don't even call you by your given name, they call you bitterness, despair, Mephibosheth. What would it be like to be that guy? And you start to put yourselves in those shoes and you start to wonder, would he have been tempted to be angry at David? He's a victim on a lot of different levels. It would have been easy for him to sort of look at his situation and say, you know, this is really all David's fault. If David hadn't been in quote-unquote rebellion to my father, the king, None of this would have happened in the first place. And there was a great temptation for Mephibosheth to grow up and to just be what his name means, bitter and angry 
and mad at the world and angry that he had lost all of this privilege. So that's scene one. Here is scene two. Mephibosheth is restored. He's restored. Second Samuel chapter 9. We'll just read a little bit here. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's interesting because apparently they hit him well. David looks up after he's the king and says, Hey, is anyone still around from Saul and Jonathan's family? I don't know of anybody. Is there anybody left? Verse 2, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. It's interesting. He didn't come angry with an axe to grind, blaming David for all the problems in his life. It would have been a temptation to do that. He doesn't do that. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that I should show regard, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, All that belonged to Saul and all uh, to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, in case you forgot, he was lame in both of his feet. So just rewind that and think about this. David starts asking, is there anybody left? That was the kind of question a lot of kings asked. Is there anyone left? From that other king that we conquered? Is there anyone left from the previous dynasty? And what they meant by that question is, is there any cleanup that we need to do? Are there any loose ends hanging out there that we need to make straight? Is there anybody out there that we need to get rid of? David says, is there anyone out there that I might show him? This is in verse 3. Is there anyone still of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of? Of God. He's reflecting on how kind God has been to him. And rather than look for one of Saul's descendants to kill them, he says, Is there anyone else out there that I could show them that same kind of kindness? 
I like how Swindoll puts it. Mephibosheth didn't know the intent. Think how Mephibosheth felt when the doorbell rang. He says this is the last thing he was to see, he wanted to see, was an emissary from the king rap on his door, but that's exactly what happened. Can you imagine the man's shock? We don't know how old Mephibosheth was, but he had a family of his own by now, for later we read that he had a young son named Micah. After answering the knock at his door, Mephibosheth is looking into the faces of David's soldiers who say to him, the king wants to see you. He most likely thought, well, this is the end. That was the moment that Mephibosheth and his friends in Lodabar had been dreading. The moment when David and his men, or David's men, march into town looking for Mephibosheth. They have no idea David wants to show him kindness. Hold your spot here and look at 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. They don't know, perhaps, in Lodabar, that David is reigning over all Israel, 2 Samuel 8, 15, and he's administering justice and equity to the people. He's not a tyrant. He's ruling with justice and with equity. And maybe they don't know about the covenant that David had made with Jonathan. Do you remember that? We talked about that several weeks back. Hold your spot. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel 20. Look at verse 14 and 15. This is Jonathan speaking to David, and he says, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. And when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan made David swear again by his love. There's our word, his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. And if you look at the end of chapter 20, down in verse 42, it says, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord in the name of Yahweh, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. They made a covenant. They made a pact. They made a promise based on the love, the hesed, that they had for each other. And David has not forgotten that. David is showing hesed, or you could just write in love, to Mephibosheth just as God had shown it to David. God showed it to David, now David is showing it to Mephibosheth. And this word, hesed, I mentioned it earlier. One Bible scholar, I liked how he said it. He said, this is a big Hebrew word. It's a a word that's so big in Hebrew that we don't have a good English word for the translation. So we use love, but we add adjectives to it to help make it feel bigger than just love. So some translations use the phrase steadfast love. That's the translator telling you, look, it's not just love here between David and Jonathan. It's not just love between God and David. It's not just love that David is showing Mephibosheth. It's steadfast love or it's loyal love or it's covenantal love. And it's a love, this is remarkable, that moves David to bring Mephibosheth into his family David brought what everyone else would have called his enemy into his family. He didn't just say, let's give him his stuff back. He didn't just say, hey, take care of him because I was friends with his dad. He said, 
I'm bringing him into the family and he's going to eat like one of my kids. I'm going to treat him no different than I treat my sons. How many times in 2 Samuel 9 does the detail come up, he's eating at David's table, he's eating at David's table, he's eating at David's table. It's repeated so that you stop and think about, this is kind of remarkable. David's not just providing for him, he's inviting him into his very family. And in David doing that, I hope you see a picture of what God has done for you if you're a follower of Jesus. The Bible says, left to ourselves, we are God's enemies. We're not his friends. We're not naturally part of his kingdom. We're not naturally born into his family. We're naturally his enemies. And by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, the Bible says we're adopted as children. We get brought into the family. And I love how Lakato puts it. He says, look closely at the family portrait hanging over David's fireplace, you'll see the grinning graduate of Low Debar High School right there in the family portrait. The text says, he's going to eat at my table. He's going to eat at my table. He's going to eat at my table. He's not second class. Everyone else would view him as an enemy. We're bringing him into the family. Redpath, Alan Redpath says, in this story, we reach the high point of David's life. This is a, a Old Testament scholar. He's written a book about the life of David, and he says, this is the pinnacle. This is David stopping to reflect on how kind, how loving God has been to him and looking to show that same kindness to somebody else. This is the high point. Here was his greatest hour. So it's a good hour for David because he is modeling to other people to his enemies, what God has done for him. It's a great day for Mephibosheth. He just got upgraded. You, you think you get excited when, like, the airline says, would you like a first-class upgrade, or the hotel says, we've given you a suite, or whatever. This is from low Debar to the king's palace, eating at his table, hiding out in witness protection, to being adopted into David's family. So it's a good day for David. It's a good day for Mephibosheth. What about Ziba? Is it a good day for Ziba? I don't know. Ziba worked for Saul, and he was sort of over the estate, essentially. And with everyone cut off, he doesn't get to inherit it all, but he kind of gets to inherit it all. It's not legally his, technically his, but he's over it all. He's managing it all. He's profiting from it all. He's got 15 sons. He's got a whole bunch of servants. And he's sort of living off of this estate that used to belong to Saul. And so one more scene here, scene three. Mephibosheth is challenged by Ziba. And this is where we're going to fast forward a little bit. Mephibosheth's in the family. Everything's great. We're going to fill in some of the blanks in David's life over the next few weeks. Eventually, one of David's sons, a young man named Absalom, tries to overthrow his father. He tries to lead a coup in Jerusalem and take over the nation. 
And David, we'll talk about this, whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. David does not want to fight his son, so he just leaves. Some would say he ran with his tail tucked between his legs. Some would say he walked out with his head held high because he didn't want to fight his own child in battle, but he leaves. He leaves the city. And in that moment, Ziba sees an opportunity. Ziba accused Mephibosheth of treason. He accuses him of treason. So jump forward, look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. David is leaving the city. He's, he's running away. 2 Samuel 16.1, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, what is his title now? He's the servant of Mephibosheth. He used to be the guy that ran Saul's estate, who managed the trust. Now he works for the crippled guy who eats at David's table. He is Mephibosheth's servant. He met David with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 uh, of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? And Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Where is Saul's son? Where is Jonathan's son? You're here with all this stuff to help me. Where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. You know people warned David about that. David, you cannot bring him into your family. He's not one of us. He's going to look for an opportunity. As soon as he sees his chance, he's going to take it. David, he's the rightful heir. You've got to be done with him. You can't adopt him as your son. And Ziba says he saw his chance. and He took it. He thinks that he's going to get the kingdom. Verse 4, the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. That's a nice gesture, but it doesn't really mean much as David is running out of Jerusalem. But he says, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your, uh, in your sight, my lord, the king. So he accuses him of treason. David runs away. I'm giving you one Bible Jeopardy point in here that has nothing to do with the story, but I think it's fascinating. When David is in exile, somebody named Makir from Lodabar brings him food. It's just, it's interesting. He's on the run. He's left. Ziba has given him something, but he gets out in the wilderness and he's got these people to take care of. And it's the people from Lodabar that remember David could have come and killed Mephibosheth, but he showed him kindness who then returned that kindness to David and give him and his people something to eat. So it's just an interesting detail. really doesn't have a ton of significance other than you reap what you sow. David reaped some kindness uh, because earlier he had sowed some kindness. Here's the fascinating part. Here's the part of the story that I've been thinking about for weeks now. Mephibosheth, when David comes back, Mephibosheth insisted that he was loyal to David. 
eventually David's going to come back to town. And he's going to meet up with Mephibosheth. And the last thing David heard is Mephibosheth stayed because he was trying to take over as soon as you ran away. And he meets Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth says, no, 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 that is not what happened at all. Ziba's lying. So look at the text, 2 Samuel 19, verse 24. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. Absalom, as an issue, has been resolved. David is back. And we read Mephibosheth shows up. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? You understand, he could have just killed him on the spot. He thought he was a traitor. He thought he was a turncoat. He could have just said, somebody go kill the guy and let's be done with it. But he gives him a chance. Verse 26, he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant, he's talking about himself, said to him, I'll saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore whatever seems good to you. He essentially says, Ziba set me up. Ziba said he was going to get the donkeys ready, and then he ditched me. And look at me, I'm lame. How am I going to get out of Jerusalem? I needed a ride out of town, and they left me behind. And then he accuses me of treason. And he's saying to David, that's not how it went down at all, David. Look what else he says, verse 28. All my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take it all since my Lord the king has come safely home. Put yourself in David's shoe just for a second. You're running to avoid a fight with your son and you find out that your adopted son has turned on you and is staying behind in your kingdom hoping to take over in your absence. And you think, wow, that's how Mephibosheth returns my kindness and my love. He waits for an opportunity and at my weakest moment, he tries to take everything that I have. Then you come back and you meet Mephibosheth. He comes out to meet you and he smells terrible and he needs a haircut and he hasn't taken care of his feet. He's just a mess. He's been in mourning. At least it looks like he's been in mourning. And he says, David, I got set up, man. They just ditched me and I, I wasn't trying to turn on you and I'm so glad you're back. And I've been grieving this whole time that you're gone. And you got, this is like the clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. And I'm stuck in the middle. And who are you going to believe? Zeba's over here saying, oh, no, 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 no. He was going to take it all from you if he could. And Mephibosheth's over here saying, no, 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 no. Zeba set me up. If you're a parent and you have kids, plural, you found yourself in that spot at one time or another. Right after we moved here, we were sitting in the living room watching TV. Our 
two little girls came into the room. I don't tell stories about them on Sunday mornings, but they're not in here tonight, so I can tell it tonight. They came in the room. We sat down. We watched TV for a while, and I looked over, and I looked at Noelle, and her hair was gone, all of it right here. And I said, what happened? She said, well, Amelia gave me a haircut. And we looked over to Amelia, and hers was pretty good right here, but not so good elsewhere. And we said, well, what happened to your hair? Well, Noel gave me a haircut. And we went in the playroom where they were, and there was no hair anywhere. It was in the trash can, covered up with other trash. The scissors, nothing in our house gets put away. The scissors had been put away nicely and neatly. All the evidence was away. And we sat down, and it's, it's, you can't be mad. I mean, you can be shocked. But you can't be mad. You just look at them and you say, whose idea was this? And Noelle looked at me and said, Dad, it was Amelia's idea. It was all her idea. And I looked at Amelia and she said, Dad, it was all Noelle's idea. And to this day, I have no idea who started it. They have held fast. They have not budged. They're like a rock. I want to get them in the interrogation room with a cigarette and a hot light and lean in front of them and try to scare it out of them. And I haven't been able to do it. They just say, no, it wasn't Matt. And that's David, in effect, higher stakes, right? What do you do? I think the easiest thing for David to do at this point would just be to say, you know what? I'm done with both of you. Bend for yourself or string them both up or I don't have time for this, I've got rebellions, I've got family to take care of, people from low to bar, people from the place that can't grow food are having to bring me food to keep me alive. I don't have time to worry about this. Instead, Peterson describes it like this, there's no cross-examination, no calling in of witnesses, He accepts both men back into his city, back into his household. His love is large enough and expansive enough to handle faithlessness, fecklessness, lies, and hypocrisy. And in the end, here's what you see when it comes to David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's place in the palace did not depend on his ability or his genealogy or his honesty It depends on David's love. Mephibosheth cannot do anything productive for David. Mephibosheth is of the line that everyone would expect David to wipe out and exterminate. And at this point, he doesn't even know if he's honest. I've adopted you into my family. I don't know if I can even trust you. I don't know who to believe, Ziba or Mephibosheth, neither of you is budging. So instead of just being done with both of them, he accepts them both back in. And Bergen describes it like this. Through this narrative, this David and Mephibosheth narrative, the biblical writer portrays David as the supreme Israelite example of covenant faithfulness, or here's our word again, chesed. It's the highest virtue in Hebrew society. And this is why we read earlier, one of the the authors, one of the commentators said, this is the high point of David's life. This is David realizing just how gracious God had been to him. And even when his enemies, 
show themselves completely unworthy of that kind of love, David is showing it to them, which brings us to scene four. Jesus is the son of David. He's the true son of David. And this story is pointing you forward to what God is going to do for his people through Jesus. Redpath says, as we meditate on David's kindness to Mephibosheth, we come to understand and appreciate more than ever God's gracious treatment of us. Jesus loves his enemies, and he brings them into God's family. That's the heart of the gospel. You're God's enemy. You're cut off from a relationship with the Father, and Jesus comes out of God's great love. We're going to talk about this Sunday morning. He's sent because God loves his enemies, and the result is we get brought back into the family. And I just want to read some of these New Testament verses with you. Look over at Galatians chapter 4. These are just beautiful, beautiful pictures of what Jesus has done for us. Galatians 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You have been brought into the family portrait, just like Mephibosheth was brought in to David's family portrait. Paul says, this is what God has done for you. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power there, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So you see the picture. Dead in trespasses and sins, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, we living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. We are children of wrath by nature, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. One last verse. Flip over and look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins we belong in the domain of darkness and in Jesus we're transferred into the kingdom of his son Jesus loves his enemies he brings them into God's family and last Jesus calls his people to love their enemies the David story at this point sort of serves a dual purpose. On the one hand, it points us forward to Jesus and it gives this picture of God through the work of Christ bringing us into his family, bringing his enemies 
into his family as adopted sons. But the David story also gives you an example to follow. As you look at David showing this kindness to Mephibosheth, it gives us an example of how we show kindness even to our enemies. So that's David and Mephibosheth. And I think you can see why some scholars would say this is David at his best. This is the highest, a beautiful story of David understanding God's love and showing it to someone else. And next week, David at his high goes to David at his low, one of his worst moments. We're going to talk about David and Bathsheba next week.